0: serious today, so I'm excited to dig in uh, to it today. But I want to begin by uh, just in Psalm 8, the psalmist talks about the wonderful works that God has done. And if you're familiar with Psalm 8, you can turn there as well. You can look. You may be familiar with it. The psalmist, David, in a very poetic fashion, talks about the works of God's fingers and, you know, looks at the moon and and the stars that God has set into place, you know. Just he's He's remarking on God's wonderful creation, and he asks this very important question. He says, who am I that God would be mindful of me? Who am I? When I look at all that God has done, all that God has created, who am I that God would be mindful of me? And I don't know about you, but that is a question that I have asked of myself at many points in my life. Times when I have failed, times when I have fallen short, times when I have made mistakes. You know, I have gone to the Lord and I say, God, who am I that you would be mindful of me, that you would continue to care for me and provide for me and consider me when all that I have done and all of who you are, who am I that you would be mindful of me? And then truthfully, the answer is when you look at all my achievements and accomplishments and mistakes and failures and all that stuff, I am nothing. But when it comes to God, I am more than just someone. I am his child. I am a part of his creation, not just part of his creation, but the part of his creation that he prizes so very much. I am someone who God loves very much. And if there's one thing that I can't explain, it's why God chooses people people with great accomplishments, people with great gifts and uh, abilities, but also people with deep scars and brokenness. And yet God chooses people like you and me to accomplish his divine purpose here on earth. What is his divine purpose? To fill the world with his glory. That is God's purpose here, to fill the world with his glory. And how he does this is he chooses people like you and me. And I think that God does it as a way he loves to show off his majestic power. And not show off in a way that you and I show off, not show off in a a sinful, arrogant, prideful way, but show off in the sense that God loves to show his majestic power by choosing people to accomplish his purposes. God chooses all sorts of people to help write his story. And the truth of the matter is, in the same way, God uses all sorts of people to help write your story. When you look back on your life, you'll see there are people along the way that have played an influential part. And believe it or not, God has ordained and appointed such people to help you write your story. Some people you look back on, and when you think about them, they bring a smile to your face. You cherish them. And then there are other people, how many of you know, that when you think back on them and recall their name, you thank God for them, but because they helped you build, you know, more humility and more grace. You know, my mom likes to say, God always gives you a child to help, you know, a certain child to help keep you humble. There are people in your life that God puts in there to help keep you humble. And we say thank you, God, for all the, those people. And what brings us... In this next chapter of our year-long conversation of building God's house, rebuilding God's house, we're in a season of rebuilding, and we're just asking God, you know, making that prayer, Lord, build your house, Lord, build your house. And the next chapter in this series is to talk about people. What, how does God use people like you and me to accomplish his will? How does God use people to build his church, to grow his kingdom? How does God use other people, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, even enemies to help build me into the person he wants me to be? And to answer that question, what we're going to do is for the next 4 weeks we're going to look to the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at the book of Genesis, and which is a book filled with people, right? the story of Genesis, and it's a book filled with people who have so much brokenness, yet God uses these people at that specific time to bring about God's purposes, to bring about his blessings, people with difficult stories, yet chosen by God to carry forward his story. And really, there's any... Pick any person in the book of Genesis, and they could fit that description. Someone who has brokenness, past mistakes, yet God chooses them to carry forward his blessing and his purposes. But there's one specific person that we're going to look at over the next four weeks, and that is a young man by the name Joseph. Some of you are familiar with Joseph. You grew up maybe in Sunday school reading the story of Joseph. Maybe you've never heard his story before. And I promise you that it's going to be a fascinating story. Joseph is the last person that the book of Genesis covers. In fact, from Genesis 37 to 50 covers the story of Joseph. You might think that he's a minor character in the story of Joseph. But truthfully, the story of Joseph takes 25% of the book of Genesis. So it's no small story. A lot of time and and attention is devoted to telling his story. And the story of Joseph is really a spectacular story, isn't it? With more dramatic turns than a daytime soap opera, believe me. It's about a man who experiences the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. As a young man, as a young boy, he's kidnapped and separated from his family. He's left in a vulnerable state, sold into human trafficking, taken to a place where he has no money, no identity, no family, and sadly that that continues to be the story for many people here on earth today. Yet through it all, we are told in Genesis chapter 39, that even at the lowest of lows, when Joseph was at the very bottom of his story, it says that the Lord was with Joseph. And that's not a coincidence that's not an accident. That's put there on purpose. That The Lord was with Joseph. Not only was God with Joseph, but we know that God has a plan for Joseph's life. And we, we that, that plan is revealed at the very end of the story in Genesis chapter 50. And I'm going to spoil it for you, okay? Spoiler alert. The Bible's been around for a long time, so you have no excuse if you, if you haven't heard it. You had your chance to read it, okay? I'm going to spoil it for you. Genesis 50, 20. Here is sort of the key message, the key point of the entire story. As for you, Joseph says, he's pointing to his brothers, but really he's speaking about the people in his life. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You did evil against me. I recognize it, I name it, but God meant it for good to bring about, and here's the purpose of all this, that many people should be kept alive. That is the people of Israel, his family, as they are today. And as for the people in Joseph's life, they meant evil, but God had a better plan. Because of God, that evil could be used for good. And I want you to know today, if that's true for Joseph, that can be true for your life today. That is true for your life today. That the people in your life, both past and present, who may have caused you evil, intentionally, I don't know, and unintentionally, But because God is with you, God can and will heal your broken heart. And he will bind up those wounds. Yes, it might take time. For Joseph, it took over 20 years. It might take some years. It might take a few decades. But when we look back on the story of Joseph, he is the living example, the living embodiment of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we know that all things work together for good. For the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, it's important that we don't misrepresent this verse, because I think if there's one verse in all of Scripture that maybe has been misrepresented or misinterpreted, it is this one. That just because something happens, doesn't mean that it was caused by God, or God wants that thing to happen. You know, just because God allows war to be fought on earth, doesn't mean that God approves of war. Yet when it comes to our story, we need to remember this. And here's here's the principle. What God allows is not to be confused with what he approves. What God allows to happen in your life is not to be confused with what God approves. What happened to Joseph does not meet God's approval. God did not approve of Joseph being Betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, which, so you know, was the price of a disabled slave in that day. That's how much his brothers thought about him. Sent and, and eventually ends up in prison. Those things that happened were not approved of God, yet they were one, the very thing that would one day lead to something that would very much meet God's approval. That is, Joseph saving his people from their death. But however, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves in the story. The story of Joseph is a, uh, a great story. And I really encourage you, if you haven't read it, go home this week, read it. It's only 13 chapters. It's a good—if you just read it as a story, it's a great story. But when you dig deeper, what you will see is the story of Joseph is a very multi-layered story. In fact, careful interpretation will show you that every word, every item— for example, Joseph's robe, his coat of many colors— Every event that happens has some sort of deeper meaning, some sort of deeper symbolism. The story of Joseph is an intensified version of his father's own struggle. His father being Jacob, who struggled with both his brother and his father, right? And really, Jacob's struggle, Joseph's father, is an intensified Uh, an intensification of his own father, Isaac's struggle, with his father, Abraham, and so forth, and so on, and so on. And so if you ever think, you know, my family's dysfunctional at times, just read about this family, okay? Just go read the story of Genesis. I promise you, you'll feel better about your story, about your family. So you have Abraham, right, who has how many sons? Two sons. The firstborn son is not born to his wife. Sarah is born to his wife's servant, Hagar, who is is an Egyptian immigrant, some foreshadowing to come, right? Who they give, Sarah gives to Abraham and born a son named Ishmael. And so it happens that Hagar, this Egyptian immigrant, is kicked out of the family and sent out in the wilderness to die, but God has a... Another plan for Ishmael and for Hagar, and wonderful story of just God's compassion and care for a woman in distress. But we know the story that Abraham would eventually have a, a son in his old age with his wife Sarah and would be born Isaac. And Isaac would also go on to have how many sons? Two sons. Isaac would, have, would and his wife Rebecca would bear Esau and Jacob, Esau being Isaac's favorite and Jacob being his mother Rebecca's favorite. And the story goes that Jacob, whose name means deceiver, cons his brother and father and steals his brother's blessing and has to leave home, right? He kind of runs out into the wilderness. And what does he begin to do? Struggle with God. He struggles with God. And after a night of wrestling with God, ends up with this giant limp, this very own thorn in his flesh. But as a result of the limp, God gives him a blessing, a new name. And his name would be changed to what? Israel. Does anyone know what the name Israel means? One who has struggled with God. One who struggles with God. Struggler. And so now Jacob has his own family, now a family of his own. Twelve daughters with four different women. And two of those women happen to be sisters, Rachel and Leah. That's another crazy story for you. Just go read it, and two of those women also happen to be, uh, you know, his concubines, his his servants. Again, you're not going to find anything like this on Netflix, okay? His family could have had their own reality television show, like keeping up with the children of Israel or something, I don't know. But it's not a coincidence that over and over again through the Genesis story, the children replay and intensify the failure of their parents. You know, sadly, I think we've all learned that lesson at some point in our life, right? I think the day that you become an adult is the day when you realize that your parents are human. And that's a pretty, you know, revealing day when you realize that your parents have their own struggles, have their own failures, have their own dreams and aspirations, and that you are not that much different from them yourself. You know, now that I have kids, I've heard things come out of my mouth. And as they're coming out of my mouth, I can hear my parents saying that into my ear, the exact same thing. And it's like, did I just say that? Anyone? Am I alone? Am I alone? Okay, good, good. I'm not alone. It's terrifying. Yet over and over again, here's here's what I want you to know. Whenever you see this repeated theme of brokenness and deception and murder and exile and division, there you will find the promise of restoration, of healing, of promise and redemption. How many of you believe today that because God is with you, broken families can be healed? How many of you believe today because God is with you, hurting marriages can be made whole? How many of you believe that because God is with you, children who have turned their backs on parents can be reconciled back into the family? You know, now that we started to transition away from pandemic policies, I'm going to go there, okay? You're hearing politicians say things like, it's time to heal again, right? It's time to heal. We need to heal. After a long two years, it's time to heal again. But I would ask a question, what does that mean? And what does it mean? It means that a lot of relationships have suffered these past two years, haven't they? I, I can't imagine that there's anyone here who hasn't lost someone, whether that's a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or a family member, as a result of the of the of the pandemic and, and its policies, has somehow, you know, fractured or rubbed the relationship a hard way. And it's like there's this recognition of the problem. We need to heal, but not exactly sure how to to resolve that or to solve that problem. Do they really know when they say it's time to heal, how to heal the hurts and overcome the division? I mean, I want to encourage you today, if you've experienced any sort of strain as a result of the pandemic these past two years, a family, a friend, with God, can that brokenness and division, does that really have to be how the story of your relationship ends? Does it? You can, is it possible that with God, what can be meant for evil And how many of you know that the enemy has meant a lot of this for evil? It actually can become an opportunity for something good. You know, I had someone in my life that I, you know, and it's like nothing even happened, right? There was no conversation. There was no, but just things began to be awkward. Just distance suddenly was felt. Maybe you felt that way, but it's like you don't even know really, but you just know, you know what I mean? And I was sitting there to myself, kind of having a woe is me moment, kind of lamenting the relationship. I just felt like, what am I doing sitting here just having a woe is me moment? Get on the phone and call him. And so that's what I did. I called and said, hey man, miss you, love you. If I've done anything to hurt you, I'm sorry, let's have coffee. Because I'm like, why am I just going to sit here and allow this relationship just just to exist this way? You know, the same relationships that have become broken maybe in your life, they can become opportunities to release God's blessing. And now Joseph is on this journey of learning that. But before he can experience the blessing, he has to experience the brokenness. Genesis 37, 2-4 says this. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. So he's a shepherd, okay? The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Those are his father's wives, Who so his half-brothers. And the first thing we learn about Joseph is he brought a bad report about them to his father. So he's a tattletale. <laughs> now Israel loved Joseph more than all other sons because Joseph was, son, was a son born to him in his old age. And he made a long-sleeved robe for him. When his brothers saw that the father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. So here's what we know about Joseph, okay? He's a teenager. He's 17 years old. You know, when I when I saw he was seventeen, instantly a lot of good country songs from back in the day when country music was good. You know, all these songs. You know, they talk about seventeen. Tim McGraw only comes once in a lifetime. Any country fans out there? You know, he's seventeen. Was a pretty crazy time if you can remember that far back. A lot of good things, a lot of crazy things. And so, you know, it's foreshadowing the fact that he's a teenager. You're going to have to give him some leeway. He's going to do some teenager things here in a moment. And we know that Joseph is the oldest of two children to a woman by the name Rachel, who happens to be the wife that Jacob loved most. Jacob wasn't, or sorry, Joseph was a miracle baby. The child that Rachel bore after years of bitter waiting, while her sister Leah bore son after son after son. And if that wasn't bad enough, she named each of them about to triumph over her sister. And perhaps for the same reason that Jacob loved Rachel the most— Jacob loves his son Joseph more than all his other sons. And so, you know, if it wasn't bad enough that all the other brothers knew that J- uh, Joseph was the son of the of the mother that their dad loved the most, Jacob decides to give his son this special coat, this robe or cloak, if you will. Now, why is this cloak notable to us is because of its many colors. We have plays such as Joseph and the Technicolor Coat, but what was notable to the brothers was not the colors of the coat, but what the robe symbolized, that is royalty in his father's house. Because Joseph and his brothers were shepherds. And shepherds don't tend their flocks with a robe that would extend to their wrists and all the way down to their ankles. It was like a gown. And so what this robe, this gown represented was, you don't have to work as hard as all your other brothers do, Joseph. You know, you have a special place in your father's house. Let them work. Let them tend to the flocks. You're better than them. You're special. You don't have to work as hard as them. You're royalty. You're nobility. And so we're told his brothers hated him. And I would, to be honest, put much of the blame on Jacob for this hatred between brother and brother. And also you have a 17-year-old doing 17-year-old things. And so what happened next in the story would make the brothers hate Joseph even more. That is, Joseph would have two dreams. Let's read chapter 37, verse 5 to 11. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. Just, Just listen, okay? Like, just tell me what you think. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field, and suddenly my sheaf stood up, and your sheaf gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of this dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. Wow, how did that happen? And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, how many brothers does Joseph have, 11, were bowing down to me. And he told his father and brothers, and his father now rebukes him, saying, what kind of dream is that that you have had? He said, am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So you got the first dream, sheaves of wheat. They're out, you know, working in the field. And, 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 and Joseph's like, you're not going to believe this dream that I just had. Like, can you tell me what you think it means? My sheaf of wheat was standing up, and your sheaves of wheat were all bowing down in a circle around me. You know, like, what do you think it means? And they're like, you're an idiot. Do you really think you're going to rule over all of us, Joseph? And the second dream he has is similar, but actually much, much bigger. Much, much, in you know, a more cosmic sense. You know, this is hearkening back to Genesis when God created, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars. Now the whole universe is bowing down to Joseph. And it not just makes sense that the brothers were mad, but now his father pipes in. He's like, do you think that I, the sun, and your, and your, and your mom, the moon, and your 11 brothers, the stars, are really going to bow down? But for some reason, his father kept the matter in mind. Why? Is there something the father knew that, you know, could it be that Jacob, who, let me remind you, was once a dreamer himself, had a dream of angels ascending and descending to heaven on a ladder. And there at that Bethel, the house of God that he named it, God appeared to him and told him that he would be blessed and all the people on earth would be blessed through him. That God was promising Jacob, this deceiver, this spoiled thief, that he would be with him and would not leave him until the job, until God saw the job through. Maybe Joe, Jacob was a little bit insecure. I'm the dreamer. I'm the favored one. I'm the special one. Or maybe Jacob knew that when God gives you a dream, it doesn't matter what stands in your way. That when God gives you a dream, it doesn't matter how many obstacles you face because nothing is going to stop that dream from coming true. Do you believe that God gives his people dreams? Do you believe? That when God gives you a dream, somehow, in some way, that that dream is going to come true? You know, dreams have always long been a fascinating subject for believers. We see many people in the Bible, old and new, are dreamers. God gives them dreams. And we know that in the last days, when, and, which is today, that when God pours out His Spirit on all flesh, that young men and young people will see visions, and old people will dream dreams. I think that whenever God's people are getting a little stale or stubborn or stuck or static, that God will send a dreamer into their midst. In fact, all newness in some way begins with a dream. I don't think it's a bad thing to dream. In fact, I think dreams are important and necessary. We need more dreamers. Young people in the room, and you're like, do I qualify as a young people? Yes, we need more dreamers. Dream big dreams. Have visions. Dream dreams. Don't be afraid to dream of a better world. But not just that, don't be afraid to allow God to dream through you a better world, a better world of His kingdom, a better world of heaven coming to earth, of His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. But when God gives you a dream, when it comes to a God given dream, here's what matters most it's not what you dream that matters. It's how you dream that matters most. Let me say that again. It's not what you dream, but it's how you dream. You see, Joseph had a dream, and that dream would that be that he would be exalted over his brothers and that they would bow down to him. Because And because God gave him that dream, it will come true. It will come true. We will see that in a few weeks. That dream he had of his brothers bowing down will come true. Yet the timing of his dream... And perhaps the manner in which he shares the dream is untrue. Because like many young people who dream often do, Joseph wants to rush the dream. He wants the dream to come true like now, like today, like get on your knees and bow to me right now. But what Joseph failed to understand because of how he dreamed is that his brothers bowing down to him was not so that Joseph could be exalted, but that by bowing down to Joseph, God would be exalted. I can't help but be reminded when I hear that, when I think of that, of Jesus' words in Matthew 23, 12, when he said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or in another instance, Jesus said to his disciples that whoever wants to be great among you must become a servant, and whoever would be first among you must be their slave. What made Jesus say those words? Was it not, after having the mother of two of his disciples, James and John, approach him and say, Jesus, come here, is it possible that my two sons, James and John, could have a seat of exaltation, could be exalted by sitting at your right hand and your left hand when you are glorified? And Jesus turns to the boys, and his question is quite pointed to them. He says to them, can you really drink this cup that I'm about to drink? And because there's pride in their hearts, because they have dreams of exaltation, they're like, oh yeah, give me the cup. I'll drink it all. Well, the cup of suffering, the cup of serving, even the cup of his death, because pride was in their hearts, because they wanted to be exalted by Jesus, they're like, oh yeah, Jesus, come on, bring it on. Give us that cup. And all Jesus said was, don't worry, you will. You're going to drink that cup, because whoever wants to come after me, whoever wants to be my disciple, will take up a cross and deny themselves and follow me. One day you're going to learn what it means to be great and exalted in my kingdom, and that is to be the least of these, to serve the least of these, to become last and put others first, to humble yourself and not exalt yourself, See, when one aspires greatness in the kingdom of God, God will ask them the question, can you drink the cup that Jesus drank? Can you drink the cup of humility? Can you drink the cup of emptying yourself, of becoming a servant, of humbling yourself? You see, it's not what we dream, but how we dream. And how we are called to dream is to dream with humility. Because if God gives you a dream of you being lifted up for some reason or some manner, don't be surprised that before that dream is fulfilled that there will be many lessons of humility that you will have to learn. And here's the good news about God, that when God gives you a test, you never fail that test. He never fails you. You just take that test over and 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 over over again until you pass it. Here's the the lesson that Joseph learned. Here's the test that God had to give Joseph. And here's the lesson we all, as disciples of Jesus, must learn. James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves, and he will lift you up. Joseph, you think that you were born to be the ruler of the sky? Maybe so. But now you're about to descend to the pit. Now you're about to fall from heaven down to the grave. And so here's what happens next. And we don't have time to really read. There's there's much more in this text here, but I'm just going to sort of abbreviate it for you. Joseph, the next thing that happens, goes out to see his brothers in the field. His dad actually sends him out to go looking, checking in on his brothers. They're about 60 miles away from home in 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 this field. And when the brothers see Joseph, what do they do? They start plotting to kill him. Now, When you look closely, you'll actually see that this encounter with Joseph and his brothers is very similar. In fact, it's on purpose painted similarly to the story of Cain and Abel that happens earlier on. When what Cain kills his brother Abel? We see that Cain and Abel were in a field, and now out in the field, Joseph joins his brothers, and they say, hey, here comes that dreamer. Let's murder him. The same word murder used is the same word that was used when Cain killed Abel. But the oldest brother, Reuben, for some reason steps up and says, look, let's not do this. Let's not ruin, you know, get in our father's bad books. Let's not spill his blood, Reuben says. Again, the same words used to describe Abel's death. Let's not spill his blood. Instead, they throw him into a pit, and they strip him of his robe. Remember the robe and its symbolism, the robe of symbolizing his exalted place in the family. They rip him of his robe. They rip it off his back, and they sell him into slavery, but not just to any people. Guess who they sell him into slavery to? The Ishmaelites. Who were the Ishmaelites? They were the descendants of his great uncle. And it says here, and we'll, we'll end the story here. It says that they, the Ishmaelites, took Joseph down to Egypt. And we're going to end the story there because there are, for many of us here, that is where the story of your life and our lives are at at this very moment. Maybe like Joseph today, you hear all of this and you are feeling the wound of betrayal. Maybe you've been thrown into a metaphorical pit. Maybe you have felt the sting of rejection and you've had the robe of God's royal love ripped off your back. I can't tell you why these things happen. I can't explain to you and neither will I ever say that these things happen to you for a reason. I don't know if they happen for a reason or not. No person can even say that. But I want you today, hearing all this, to rest in that place and have confidence in knowing that what God allows will not be confused with what God approves. And if you have walked through something in life, if you've experienced something in life that God disapproves of, and hear me today, if there's anything God disapproves of, it's injustice towards his people. If you've experienced injustices today, know that God does not approve of that. Rather, he disapproves of that. And if it means if something he disapproves of, that means that what has been allowed to happen in your life will be redeemed for your good if you are willing to let him. How do I know? How can I say that because God disapproves of it, if we let him, he'll take that evil, that that harm that has happened, and he'll actually turn it into something really good and really wonderful? How can I be so certain today? I know this today because that is the story of Jesus. Because what happened to Jesus on earth? Like, what happened to him? Can anyone say here today that God approved of that? Approved of what we humans did to Jesus? What happened to jesus he came to his own and he was rejected god approve of that he was betrayed by his own brother joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver pharisees and the religious leaders conspired to kill him and when he was about to be crucified they took his own blood-stained robe and they stripped it off his back and they divided among themselves the answer today is honestly no In no way did God approve of what happened to his son. But did the father allow these things to happen? Yes. And for that reason, Jesus, the night you know, the, the night before his death, he got on his knees and he prayed. He said, Father, if it's possible that this cup that I'm about to drink could pass before me, if there's any way that I could be spared from having to go and experience all this, would you would you do that? Would you allow that? But yet he said, God, not Father, not my will be done, but yours. Because there was a greater purpose in his suffering. What was intended for evil against Jesus God used it for good. And so what happened was we, and I use we in the sense of our humanity, our sinfulness, we the people crucified Jesus, but it says God raised him from the dead. We crucified him. This is what Peter said to the crowd in Acts chapter 2. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Which means you did that and you were wrong. The fact that he's alive from the he rose from the dead means that he's right. God's right. God's right. Now the suffering servant is now exalted to the right hand of the Father. But what does Christ do at the right hand of the Father? He intercedes on your behalf. He prays for you. He calls out to the Father for you. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and he calls you, come, approach my throne of grace. If you've been hurt, if you've been wounded, if you've been injured by someone, by another person, come. I can identify, I can sympathize with your weaknesses because that's what happened to me. And when you come and you approach my throne of grace with confidence, when you find yourselves in the pit of life, there you will find when you come to me the mercy and grace to help in time of need. Who am I that God be mindful of me? Well, the answer is I am one who is in Christ. And so are you. So are you and so today in Christ if you are in Christ you can be in this life afflicted but not crushed you can be perplexed but not driven to despair you can be persecuted but not abandoned you can be struck down but not destroyed because what was meant for evil against you because God is with you God can turn it into something good Joseph's story is our story today because ultimately Joseph's story is Christ's story so I want to invite you right now to stand to your feet. And I want you to know this today, the hardships of life, they don't always make us better, do they? You know, it's like the words of uh, Kelly Clarkson, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. That's not always true. They can actually make us quite bitter, the hardships of life. They can make us weaker. But it's hardships plus God's presence, plus God's power, having his way in our hearts, by letting go of our pride and our stubbornness and our ambitions and instead being clothed with the robe of Christ's humility and servanthood, that's what leads to God making all things work together for the good of those who love Him. So today in closing, I just want to read to you this testimony, this story. This is a story of somebody here in our community at part of our Cornwall campus who submitted this story to the church and I think it was just such a perfect story for where we're at today in this message and I just want to read it to you and then we're just gonna sing one more song. This is by Kathy and Dante DeMars. It says, what do you do when those you put your trust in fail you and deceive you and God seems silent? You stand, you hold strong, you declare the promises of God even when you don't see them. You worship when there are no words, you sit silent with God, you continue to show up and serve his church. In the fall of 2020, After having lost out on six house offers, we finally bought a house. The house, though, had a past. A history of drug use, drug dealing, prostitution. Yet our family felt it was our home. The day we moved in, we declared it would be a house of hope. Oh, how our hope would be tested. The time came for us to renew our private mortgages. The banks didn't like the home in its current condition. A previously forgotten given student loan had reappeared with no explanation we felt okay as our lawyer had brokered all the deals. What we didn't know was that one of the lenders was her brother. With an extremely high interest rate and hidden fees, we fell behind on payments, and the lender called in the loan six weeks before it was due. Scrambling, we found a bank who agreed to take on the property. On closing day, we found out the house wasn't properly zoned. This meant a minor variance with the city and a rezone before the bank could take on the mortgage. That meant many more months, during which we tried to pay our lender the missed payments, he refused the money, filing a foreclosure action on our home. A newly hired lawyer told us this whole deal was set up to cause us to fail, so the first lawyer and her brother could take the home. More so, the first lawyer took a lot of money in the first deal that she never disclosed, so much so that the second mortgage with her brother should never have been needed. We felt anger. How can people be so evil? God you gave us this home you gave us this vision why is this happening because all of this now no lender would help us our current lender was refusing our money to make us look bad we were about to lose our home and be homeless at Christmas but God but God a person who had actually been approached about buying our home when it would go into default he knew us he didn't like what he heard he wanted to help The week everything was supposed to close, our lawyer called us and told us we would need another $3,000 over and above what was secured. It was those hidden fees that weren't disclosed to us. We were undone. We went from the mountaintop to the valley in an instant. We had no more money. We did the only thing we knew to do. We worshiped and we prayed. We had a few people who had been standing with us. Through it all, we asked them to pray. The next day, our son got a check in the mail for more than we needed. This was one of the hardest seasons we've been through. What got us through was worship. It's all we knew to do. Things were beyond our control. We prayed and we worshiped. We knew we couldn't turn our backs on God. He'd seen us through too much. While we still need long-term financing, we know God is faithful. He hasn't brought us this far to leave us. He hasn't shown us he will take care of us just to leave us now. We don't know how he will make a way, but we know he will. Let's worship for a few more moments together and then we'll close today in prayer.